Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that dark god, Jeff Goad. I want your kiss. You're not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> but I want it, please, please. <laughs> well, uh, there's a guy I have to kill, so yes, why not? <laughs> uh, this week, we're very honored to have rejoining us, Cora Bullert, author, blogger, two-time Hugo Award finalist. Hello, Cora. Hello, everybody. So, Cora, what have you been up to since we last talked to you? Um, well, um, I'm still a Hugo finalist because Worldcon is only in December, so I won't know who wins until just before Christmas. And uh, mm-hmm. but I won another award. I won the Space Cowboy Award, handed out by Space hey. Cowboy Books, which is a really nice uh, used bookstore in Joshua Tree, California. So if anybody is ever in the area, give them a give them a visit. They're cool people. Um, and um, otherwise, yes. Um, I'm still blogging a lot. Right now, I've been um, reviewing the new Foundation series because I was a big fan of the books growing up. And so far, it's uh, the verdict is mixed, as in wait and see. I'm not quite sure what to make of this. And mm-hmm. um, yes, I also published um, a few few books in my... also published two stories in my Sword and Sorcery series. Oh, uh, nice. series. Okay. Um, one of them is actually at least partly inspired by our subject of today, Gerald of Lorry. Terrific. And these are available on Amazon and all your other uh, uh, standard ebook sellers? Uh, so. on, every, uh, on every retailer. The Zero inspired one is called The Black Knight. The Black Knight. Okay, look look for that. Cora Bula. Very cool. B-U-H-L-E-R-T. And, and in our patron book club, before we recorded this episode, we had Oliver Brackenberry on, who was one of our patrons who was joining us. And he was mentioning, he's like, oh, and I really want to tell you guys about Cora Bullert's um, great reviews on the Jarelle of Joirie books. And I was like, Oliver, I've got good news for you. Yep. Cora's <laughs> coming back for this episode. Right, right. And we also have to thank uh, Dan Alexander, who also pointed out those pieces to us. Yes. That's very much. And who's Oliver, like know quite today, well. I probably know Dan as well, but, um, I, but at least uh, the name doesn't ring a bell. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So, so happy to have you here. And for once, we have the perfect fit between our guest and the subject matter. <laughs> Probably not since uh, Daniel J. Bishop. Before we get to the book proper, uh, which editions are we working with today? Well, I've got the 2015 Division Books ebook with a pretty bland cover. Uh, but also, while I was reading that, I was also listening to the Black God's Kiss audiobook that is available on Audible. Very good. And Cora, what copy are you working with today? Um, I have the Fantasy Masterworks copy, Black Gods and Scarlet Dreams, um, which collects all of the, basically pretty much everything C.L. Moore wrote for Weird Tales, so all of the Jirel and all of the Northwest Smith stories. Um, and I used to have the ASIM edition of the Jirel stories, but um, I gave that one away to a friend and uh, bought this one because it also had the Northwest Smith story. But it doesn't have the crossover. For right, some right. That's the... Uh, Quest of the Starstone, right? Yeah, that one is uh, very elusive. Which I didn't read anyways, because technically, since we are covering Jarelle of Joirie, that collection, and not Black God's Kiss, which includes, because Black God's Kiss includes the Starstone story, but Jarelle of Joirie does not. 
So I did not read Quest for the Starstone, but Hoy, you did, correct? I did, because I had the ebook, and I also have the uh, Gateway Omnibus, which mm-hmm. has Jarrell, Jarari, and Northwest of Earth, and uh, Judgment Night, so more of our short stories. And if so, our listeners are curious why Hoy just got quiet, it's because he just put the book between sorry, him and the microphone. Sorry, once again. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's gigantic. It, it takes up, it's like the, it's like the, uh, like the uh, uh, Great Wall of China. But well, it's, Judgment um, Night yes, is, of so course, also, it's a Judgment Night is novel length. Short novel, but it yeah. is a novel. It's like 40, yeah. 45,000 or 50,000 words. Uh, yes. So those are the ones that we're working with. And so, Cora, how did you, had you discovered uh, Sherelle through that Ace paperback or did you read her elsewhere before? Uh, I your... had heard of her before. I don't really know where I heard of her, but I heard there's this, this cool story from the same, uh, from the same time as the Conan stories, these cool stories about a, female thought fighter and I said wow that sounds so cool I need to get those books and then I found this ace paper bag bag with the cover where the it's with the, the white horses which um Jirel, mm-hmm. like, the blind white mm-hmm. horses horses which Jirel, like, right, right. Found in the underworld world and um, such I a gorgeous it, cover yeah right. it's an amazing cover yeah. I found it in a used bookstore in Toronto on holiday and brought it home and then later on when the fast fantasy masterworks edition came out I bought that one because I wanted the Northwest Smith stories because I like the hero stories so much and um, gave away, which I probably shouldn't have done, my ace copy to a, to a friend who was interested in feminist literature and female and right. female writers. Right. Right. You're a much better friend than I am. I would never have given my copy away, especially yeah. as, <laughs> especially as a Stephen Hickman cover, who uh, Stephen Hickman sadly just passed away this year. Oh, yeah. Believe, so. yeah. Such a beautiful cover. Yeah. Um, and hoy, rumor has it, you have a Hygaxian word of the day. I do, and it's right at the beginning of the story. So here we go. Shrive. So shrive is a uh, archaic term, basically to hear the confession of and to absolve someone. And Gerald, uh, uh, this word is used three times at the very beginning of the story, when well, just past the beginning, when Gerald is about to enter the underworld, and she asks Father Gervais to essentially pardon her sins for seeking out this whatever hellish weapon she can find to achieve her vengeance on Guillaume. So, Shrive. Yeah, actually that was my Love pick it. also, because I, I did look for one, and I saw, and I remember that this book was where, this story was where I first encountered that word, because I didn't know right. it. And it was, at the time, pre-internet, not so easy to find out what it meant, because most modern dictionaries don't have it. But um, mm-hmm. I have a 1903 English-German dictionary from my, uh, inherited from my great-grand-uncle, and um, that one had the word. <laughs> There you go. Oh, and it has a gaming connection too, although not for D anD D, which is that in the very first edition of Call of Cthulhu, there was a spell called Shriving, and it was essentially the spell that was used to sort of dispel uh, Charles Dexter Ward in the, um, in uh, you know, in that sort of gaming version. And they since have called it Shriveling, which is much more prosaic. So Shriving was actually <laughs> the, a spell in first edition Call of Cthulhu. Very cool. So I didn't know there that. You go. Well, shall we head into the library? Indeed, we shall. So. Cora, tell us. I mean, this book obviously uh, struck a, a chord with you because you wrote two very um, long pieces on the first two stories. So what was the impact like when you first read these stories? Well, I think the imp- I mean, um, even these, especially if you think when this book was written, it was written like in, it was the first, the first two stories came out in 1934. So that's um, 87 years ago. And um, here we have, um, have a, Literally strong female character, character a woman who's a, who's not only the lord, she's the lord of the manor, she's the leader of men, man, she's a great warrior, 
and um, especially the opening scene it's whenever if you've ever seen any any scene in any uh, movie uh, video game or TV show where there's a person in some kind of full body armor whether it's medieval armor or modern armor and the helmet comes off and it's a it's a beautiful woman woman everybody mm-hmm. whoever wrote the scene has to thank Steel Moore because he did it first in 1934 that's the opening scene mm-hmm. when uh, the revelation uh, when the revelation the Gerald's castle has been conquered by a guy called Guillaume, who's, uh, yes, um, something of a jerk with serious consent issues. issues. And um, when she is brought before him as a captured lord and he pulls the helmet off and, wow, it's a woman. And uh, and then he kisses her. And, yeah, that's, the, that's not the last mistake he'll ever make, but uh, the second to last. Right. Yeah, <laughs> he kisses her against her will. Yes, mm-hmm. he doesn't ask for permission. If he had asked for permission, right. he might have gotten it because Yerl mm-hmm. does actually think Guillaume is really attractive, but um, he's just killed her man and conquered her castle with blood all over the floor. So, yes, he's not kindly right. inclined to him. If he had knocked on the right. door, he might have uh, he might have actually um, gotten permission. Now, so you uh, uh, make a very strong case that these first two stories are um, essentially a psychologically realistic portrait of dealing with the aftermath of trauma, specifically rape. Um, is this something that, I mean, we now know that a lot more sexual violence was happening in so-called past golden ages than, you know, we are willing to admit now because, because of the Me Too boom and all these other things have told us that, you know, these things have been happening since the dawn of time. Uh, is this something that the average reader would have picked up in that time period, do you think? I'm not sure. I mean, I didn't pick it up the first time around. I read those stories was just like, okay, he kissed you, but uh, that's not a reason to kill the guy. Just kick him in the nuts or something like that. That, uh, (laughs) But when I read it again, I think, okay, the kiss is a stand-in because, of course, in the 1930s, they couldn't write about about sex in the pub. It was very difficult to write about. And Weird Tales was opener than most. In Weird Tales, Mm -hmm. people have sex. And also in the stories of um, C.L. Moore, people have sex. I mean, Chamblot, the first Northwest Smith story, the first published story, which came out a few months before, basically has a like two-page tentacle sex scene in nineteen in right, nineteen thirty-three right. or thirty-four, which is like wow. And you make it very clear that Jarelle is not a virgin because she says, "I'm not ignorant in the ways of light loving." Yeah, right? she, she pretty the, much uh, admits it that she she's not a virgin. She's had lovers before, probably some of her her soldiers because they are kind of handy. Right. So she's so. not a, she's not an innocent. Which is also something I like because um, that she's not a not an innocent wilting virgin, but uh, she's someone who knows what's going on, and uh, and so she's not going to faint. But okay, this guy assaulted her, and he's going to pay. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, what's really interesting too is you know he assaults her, and she goes to get her revenge on him, and by the end of the first story, she succeeds. And she's gone to this like demon underworld. She's received the black god's kiss and she's delivered it to him. And it has caused him, it has caused her to defeat him. And what's interesting is when that kiss is delivered, she then realizes, realizes that she's been in love with him the whole time. And what's interesting about this is I feel like this can be a lot of things. And I like that C.L. Moore leaves this as kind of a blank canvas for us to project what we need to onto it. Because on one hand, I see one way I see it is this could be a part of the Black God's curse. She was warned before to never accept a gift from a demon, and she accepts this gift. She accepts this weapon she can use against him. But when she delivers it, 
now she has fallen in love with the good parts of his soul. And part of me wonders, was that the curse of the Black God? Because now in the beginning of the next story, she's going back into the underworld, seeking the good part of Guillaume. Um, but really, that just brings her right into the Black God's uh, trap. And now he's trying to take her. So maybe it was the cur- maybe it was some, some part of this curse. But also, it could also be the phenomenon that's very common amongst people who've been sexually abused, which is that they can have very complicated feelings about their abuser or their perpetrator, especially if it was somebody who was known to them. And sometimes it can be confusing, especially if you are pursuing legal action against them. And it's very common for people to start to then like feel really bad for the person that they are subjecting to a criminal trial or whatever. And here we've got Jurel of Joirie who has gotten her, her revenge, but now this man is in hell suffering. And maybe she's also just feeling really bad about what her role in this has been. So it's really interesting that there's so much emotional complexity in this sword and sorcery tale. Yes. I mean, I was surprised that uh, I think she was 23 years old. Um, when she wrote this. Oh. The 23 year old, year old um, bank teller from I think Indianapolis or Cincinnati someplace or somewhere around around wrote this this psychologically complex and realistic stories. I mean I don't know what her experiences in life were were. We don't know mm-hmm. we know a bit about her but uh, and we know that she had um, that she that her she had um, she was engaged to a fellow worker at a clerk at that bank and he committed suicide. I don't know if that had happened. I think that hadn't happened yet by this point. It happened in 1935 or 36. But um, okay. so she did have uh, have difficulties in life, but uh, we don't know anything about her if, she's, if she had experiences with sexual assault. I mean, you do see it in the pulp sometimes. There are a few also sort of realistic scenes or aftermath scenes of sexual assault in some of the Conan stories. Stories, but then mm-hmm. Robert E. Howard, he was the son of a country doctor. He probably saw a lot of unpleasant things due to his father's law. But Seal Moore, he seems to be this very sheltered person, but um, she writes stories which suggest that he was anything but sheltered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Cor, I have a question for you about the place of sexual assault or the threat of sexual assault in fantasy literature or also possibly in gaming stuff as well, but especially, I guess, right now in fantasy literature. So... In real life, the threat of sexual assault is something that all women sit with. And that that fear is something that is very common because sexual assault happens. And it happens often. It happens a lot more often than even today society wants to acknowledge. And on one hand, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror, oftentimes we're using those genres to explore our feelings about things that we are actually afraid of in the same way that like the vampire genre became really big when the AIDS epidemic became big. You know, we use speculative fiction to explore our feelings around very real world things. But on the same hand, we also use speculative fiction to escape the real world. And it seems like right now in 2021, when we're recording this, the, the general vibe right now is that using sexual assault as a threat against female characters is something that isn't currently something that really has a place in fiction at the moment. It feels regressive because I think for a lot of people, they want to have this to be a space that they can escape to and they don't have to worry about 
sexual assault being something that the characters have to face. So I'm curious how you feel about, as a female writer, do you avoid having the threat of sexual assault in your writing, or are you fine including it in there? Um, well, I think if you, I, I mean, sexual assaults happen. And I say, and we should also write about things which happen. So I don't think any subject should really be off limits forever. But the problem, I think, is that it was simply an easy shorthand, like, oh, she's been raped and now she will take her revenge on the rapists, which is a terribly common mm. plot in, in bad uh, fantasy films, fantasy novels, and so on. Not the good stuff, like, <laughs> but the really the, the, piece, the sort of like uh, like 20th generation bad, bad serious copy and so on. Yes, it's... Uh, and also, um, some with a lot of um, some authors, um, this isn't actually sexual assault, isn't much of a problem in 1930s or 40s pulp, simply because um, censorship stopped them from being too graphic. You have it, it happens, it's meant, especially, I don't think there's ever been a single case in, in Unknown or something, but in Weird Tales, you have um, examples of sexual assault and so on, on mentioned usually quite vaguely or give him all. Um, Sort of metaphorically, but it happens. But it was absolutely overused for a while, especially the whole Grimdark movement, movement which was basically like uh, okay, the old was some. I think there was one book where I don't think you didn't see there wasn't a woman who wasn't a, a sort of female rape victim until halfway through the book or something. And that's of course what mm. annoyed a lot of people because um, you couldn't open a fantasy book without getting oh yes, and there's women and they're getting raped and so on. So basically, right. you can write about it. About it, but if you must write about it or mention it, then at least uh, then yes, do your research and uh, make sure that it really needs to be there. Same with things like racism. Racism, you can talk mm. about it, but um, be responsible and um, also put a content warning so people know what to avoid. Right, right, mm. and I think you're right there. Like obviously with Grim Dark and you know, so George was very common in uh, you know. The threat there was very common in the sort of Game of Thrones series. Yes, but yes that was George R. 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 is trying to make of it. Yeah, yeah, he was trying to make a point, I believe, in the books that was maybe sort of not understood in the TV series. Right, that this is this is the fate of people who lack power; that anything can be inflicted can be inflicted upon them. Also, sort of, um, there was a, It's not just Martin. A lot of authors at the the late eighties, nineteen nineties, nineties had sexual assault as a. Um, as a sort of the fate of the, it wasn't also always just women either. Men were just as as well victims, which is, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, who did Diana Gabaldon, the woman who wrote those uh, Outlander stories, those are full of sexual assault, assault, which mm-hmm. annoys them. And a lot of the times, the victim are male. They're not just it's women too, but also a lot of men. And um, and there's others from the same era as well. Well, so it was sort of, um, I think it was a case of we can talk about this how badly women and also also men who were considered powerless and children were treated, but um, the Grimdark movement sort of um, misunderstood it completely. And I think also, um, uh, Jeff, you said you make an interesting point. So A, with the Grimdark movement took it, you know, it was just such a common trope that people were just really, really tired of it. And especially, as you say, Cora, the people, the, the writers didn't have the sensitivity to really add anything new. It was just yeah. a, a trope. And I think also now with, um, and, and Jeff, you're right to a certain extent that people are looking for something to ascend to, and especially in these sort of dark and confusing times that they don't want to see it in their, you know, their aspirational fiction. It's one yeah. thing if you're reading crime or true crime or, you know, even literary fiction, which is supposed to be a mirror of our world. But 
you know, fantasy and science fiction is supposed to, you know, in some people's minds, take us beyond what's, you know, bad in our world to the next step. So also crime fiction. I mean, cozy, those cozy mysteries with uh, cupcake baking, yeah. witches, uh, solving bloodless mm. crimes. Those are yeah. hugely popular. Right. I don't quite, right. uh, mm-hmm. I read, read one or two and I thought, okay, that's interesting, but I'm not sure why people are reading, why these things are published by the hundreds, but they're popular. So of course, they provide a sort of safe escape. Escape. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, nothing ever really bad happens in these books. Okay, someone right. dies, but... <laughs> they probably had it coming to them anyway. Yeah, right? most <laughs> <laughs> so we've spent a lot of time talking about the first two stories in this collection, but I'm curious, Cora, is is there another one of the Jarrell stories that really stands out to you? Um, Hell's Guard, the, the, the last one published, is one I really, really like. It's basically, um, it's basically a haunted house story, but a haunted castle story, but as a sword and sorcery story. So you mm-hmm. don't have some kind of Charles Dexter Ward type blundering about, but um, a strong woman with a sword. And so mm-hmm. basically the premise is um, is an enemy, um, guy of Garlot. They all have these lead names. All the bad guys have these lead names. In the yeah, I think he disliked people with lead names for some reason. He had yeah. so many people. <laughs> people saw yeah. this guy, guy of Garlot or B of Garlot, since he's probably his yeah. friends. He's captured some of Gerald's men and is going to torture and kill them if she doesn't get him something from this haunted castle of Hellsgard, which is a really creepy place, and it's a um, certain box, and uh, and uh, the, oh, the ghost of the old lord of Hellsgard is walking about, and there's a new lord, uh, new lord, there are, dead, there are dead sentries, and it's a really, really lovely, creepy setting, and, okay, in the end, Jirel gets her box, and, um, okay, can we spoil it? Wallet, um, they want her to open it, and so she says, "Oh, that's nice." And she gives it to the guy who actually, and uh, he does, uh, and and uh, knows that he will open it. So the villain, this guy of Galot, that he will open the, the box, and yeah, that his doom. And unlike Guillaume, she's not at all sorry about this. Also, one thing I like, is that <laughs> just like Conan, she's she's also very loyal to her people. She's uh, she basically risks her mm-hmm. life to and her soul to rescue her men. Which is very similar mm-hmm. to what Conan does in a lot of stories, where he, where he, where he, all he wants to do is rescue some of his his people who have been captured. Right. So um, I want to build on one thing you just mentioned, and then one thing that people in the book uh, club mentioned. So um, you had mentioned that um, C.L. Moore and Lee Brackett knew each other, and so that this certainly maybe there was a Northwest Smith influence on the Eric John Stark stories. But I also felt like this particular story, Hellsgard, this weirdo vampire vampire family in other words they feed on you know they feed on the undead was very yeah, much undead like that suckers undead suckers <laughs> was very much like that weird family in uh, enchantress of venus yeah, to my mind that point, the dynamics actually. you know and of course um the eric john stark story um black amazon of mars uh, basically yeah, borrows the, the whole zero reveal and um, right, the helmet, and the... but he also has red hair and so of course in all cases, uh, the bloody cover artists spoil. I mean, they're great cover artists, but they always spoil the reveal, which is like, you don't do this, maybe. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> right. but, uh, but, um, he's, uh, but uh, it's pretty much the same thing, except that, uh, and um, I think that it's been later rewritten, then she has different, but she also has red hair in the first uh, first version of the story. And so then, uh, Jeff and Cora, you both mentioned uh, Jarell's loyalty um, but who's, um, one of the, one of the, uh, people in our group was mentioning that she always mentions that she is Joari, right? 
uh, Jarel Ishwari. And so I think there was maybe also this idea of um, that medieval idea of the ruler of the realm embodying that realm. So someone attacking her men was an affront to her personally also. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there was the personal loyalty that she had, but there was also that literally this is an affront to the natural order. Right. By, you know, by attacking her men, they have attacked her directly and she's the ruler of the realm. Therefore, she has to do these things. <laughs> right. Yeah, Even so if she's the evil mindset was the whole feudalistic and leash system system. Tiamo captured it really well as well. And um I don't know if she and she knew any. She probably she must have known something about history and so on, uh, so on. She captured it really well. So it does feel suitably medieval, except for the monsters and the, the ghosts and the vampires. So overall, I adored this collection. I had so much fun reading it. I love Jarell, and I'm going to say something that's potentially controversial that I didn't even say in the book club. Uh oh, here we go. I like Jarell more than Conan. Ah, there you go. And but but I also but I also completely recognize that C.L. Moore is working with a lot of the the tropes that Conan was working with. And she was also injecting a lot of Lovecraftian influences into it as well. But I also just think she did it so well. And like one of the things that's so fun about Conan stories is how Conan stories start in the middle of the action or after some big action-packed thing has happened. And that absolutely happens in all of these Jarelle of Joiri stories as well. And it's done so well. And I also love the way that she incorporates the Lovecraftian aspects as well. There's one part of the very first story that I highlighted where it says there was something queer about the angles of those curves. This is when she's going down that mm-hmm. tunnel into the underworld. There was something queer about the angles of those curves. She was no scholar in geometry or aught else but she felt intuitively that the bend and the slant of the way she went were somehow outside any other angles or bends she had ever known. And it's that's just so Dreams in the Witch House to me. It's so Lovecraftian. I love it. Of course, they all wrote, uh, they all corresponded with, with each other. Howard, Lovecraft, yes. Moore, they were friends. I think C.L. Moore was the first person from the whole weird tale circle who learned, who learned of Howard's suicide. I don't know why they called. And of course, Howard was really impressed by by um, the Gerald stories, and he wrote the Dark Agnes stories, which they were never published in his lifetime, unfortunately, and there's only like two and a half of them in response. So he was really, so he was really impressed. Of course, he was also influenced by hers because they were basically also published next to each other. The first mm-hmm. Gerald, both the first two Gerald stories are published next to Conan stories, as partly is, I think, The Witchville Shall Be Born, and part of, I think it's People of the Black Circle, circle at least okay so they were basically published next to each other in the same magazine right yeah, yeah and a lot of those authors were all kind of yes anding each other yeah they were all sure, friends. Nice. i think lovecraft yeah. introduced henry kuttner who would be her husband future husband and cl to each other because henry kuttner was a really young one and still aspiring writer he was obviously he was writing letters to lovecraft and he said like okay maybe cl moore can help help, here's the address, and then he said, he sent a letter with, dear Mr. Moore, blub, 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 and he said, okay, yeah, um, but it's actually, it's actually Miss Moore, and my name's Catherine, and so, um, and so that started it, and I think four years later, they were married. Amazing, I love that. Yeah. yeah, and as a kid, I was a huge He-Man fan, and 
reading this really brought back that joy that I had as a kid watching He-Man cartoons. Like when, she, like in every story, she's like going to some other world, except in Hell's Guard, but Hell's Guard is still kind of another world. And I love the way that Oliver Brackenberry stated this in the book club. He said um, that Jarelle of Joirie is Alice in Wonderland with a big fucking broadsword. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that like rings so true. And these like crazy worlds she's going to, they're just so vibrant and full of life. Like when the ground is just like sweet swelling so it's breathing and these plants that are like like sending bubbles into the air like it's it's just also like flavorful and amazing and to me i think i think Yerel was probably the model one of the models for tila because they're quite similar characters okay tila is a bit happier than Yerel, but they're similar characters they were both alpha women who who command men and who don't who take no shit from anybody Mm. and have flaming red hair yeah they even have the same hair color Okay, that's also Absolutely. Red Sonja as a possible model, but I always, but Tila doesn't really strike me like a Red Sonja character. She's more like, she's more Jirel like. Yeah. Now, Cora, do you know if um, CL Moore would have um, any knowledge of Howard's call stories? I don't believe the call stories were published, right? She He reworked most of those, but. But I, w- I was wondering if she, if she might have read them in manuscript or anything like that. Any knowledge? It's possible. Of I mean, she read Dark. He sent her the Dark Agnes manuscript, manuscript, so it's possible that she read them. I think that's probably something you have to to you have to um, ask the people who Bobby Derry will probably know. He since he edits Derry, all yeah. of the he edits all of the he he edited the collected letters, so he would probably know. No, he's my go-to right. person when I want to like. Uh, do we know if Howard uh, or Lovecraft or knew this or that? That, but it's right. quite possible that also two call stories were published: the Shadow Kingdom and right. what's the other one, the one with the right. magical mirrors. That one's mm-hmm. the mirrors of Tooth and Tony. Right. Yes, that was also right. published. The reason I mention that is because I think the call stories are much more interior than the Conan stories, and mm-hmm. and in a similar way that the the Jarell stories are. And each of these Jarell stories, she goes as you mentioned, Jeff. The only one she she doesn't literally go to another world is Hell's Guard, and even that she, there's a sort of a dream state in there, yeah. so that. I feel like um, she's exploring a certain amount of territory that is more similar to the call stories, and she's exploring the sort of uh, sort of psychological in between state that probably um, you know Conan is a very certain character, and Conan uh, and Jarell tries to manifest a certainty, but she doesn't necessarily feel it at all times, and so that's by the nature of her role, being a woman, a leader, a warrior, and so that she's in and in, 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 in an in between state frequently in a way that Conan is not, and that certain other, uh, you know, swords and sorcery characters are not. And so I was wondering if that was something that she picked up with, I mean, that she was feeling, but also that she was able to use the themes that were in the, the Cull stories, because Cull also frequently feels like he's in between, right? He's not, he's not 100% of the, you know, the, the place and the time that he's in. Yes, he's, um, of course. Like I said, it's quite possible that she did read them because um, we know that Lovecraft read uh, the cult stories, all of them, because Howard sent them to him. So he might have sent, and he sent uh, C.L. Moore the Dark Agnes story. So it is possible, but um, at least I don't yeah. don't know. No, because yeah, C.L. Moore is not quite as, uh, we know a bit about, we know quite a bit about her, but she's not as well researched as Lovecraft or Howard are. Mm-hmm. But a lot mm-hmm. better um, than oh. some of the more obscure Weird Tales contributors where you know, where you have a name, maybe a birth date, and a few stories, and that's it. And then looking, transitioning this over more to the gaming side of the conversation, I'm curious, Cora, of all of the villains that we have in these stories, 
which one do you feel like would be the most fun villain to take and turn into like a Dungeons and Dragons style NPC villain? Well, um, I think actually the sorcerer is from um, what uh, Jeremy Meets Magic, whose name, of course, I've forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Might be a really fun villain. She's the only yeah. Yes, Jerisme is yeah. a sorcerer. She's an evil sorceress, and she would probably be fun because um, Guillaume and uh, Guy of Garlot and so on, they're basically just uh, the um, sort of paladin gone bad type. Type, um, yeah, um, they're bullies, but they're not uh, not all that impressive as villains. And the Black God mm-hmm. is uh, is a bit too. I mean, you can basically pretty much borrow the whole of Black God's kiss kiss and turn it into a D and D adventure. Down to the, the to let's get the, the kiss from the Black God, but uh, the Black God is a bit too um, too ephemeral. And of course, there's a, the villains from. The people from the, what's his name, Alaric from Hell's Guard would also be good. But I think Yarisme would probably be the best choice, best choice because he's the most tangible Bill Will. And everybody else is more sort of, um, also the guy from what's it called, the Dark Land. Puff, he's, who's mm. actually is Puff, the Dark Puff, Puff. He yeah. wants to marry yeah. Jill, except that Jill is not too keen on being his queen. queen and yeah. um, he literally is the darkness. So they're all a bit more metaphysical villains. Charisma is, most, right, is right. the most um, human one. And she's also a lot of fun. I think actually she... Mm-hmm. Moore was hoping for the cover there because we have a lot of women-on-women fights and he know, knows that Margaret Brandish loves... Right, Margaret Brandish, of course. Yes, <laughs> <Right>. but... Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Women, two women fighting with very little clothes that was Margaret Brandish, something Margaret Brandish loved to illustrate. And <laughs> but um, for some reason that story never made the cover the only one which did is Eckhart's Kiss mm-hmm. okay yeah. yeah and Jerisme is she's just so camp she's yeah. so over yeah. the top and <laughs> so and like and also like taking it back to He-Man she kind of has some like evil Lin yes, vibes as well yes she's a kind of evil Lin type <laughs> yeah and like when like there's like the heat shimmer and then she disappears <laughs> you know, I visually I kind of was thinking of like Maleficent from like you know uh, Sleeping Beauty a little bit. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, yeah. She's yeah. very kind of classic Blanchard cartoon as, uh, villainess. As, as yeah. to sister in, in Ragnarok. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-hmm. For my money, the creepiest villain though is Pav's ex ex queen. You know the skeletal. Oh, yeah. yeah, the witch. Yeah, the witch. You know, um, and I don't think we ever learned her name, right? We just you know just. I don't think so. Yeah. I think she's only ever referred to as the witch. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's like a real nightmare figure because she just like, you never kind of like the nature of the dark land. They don't really move through it anyway. They sort of will themselves and they, they just come closer. But she in particular just feels like she just keeps coming closer without actually traveling the distance in between. And so that's that very nightmare logic of her just like getting closer and like, you know, her eyes, which are webbed, but somehow, you know, dark at the same time, you know, it's just, yeah. you know. Um, and then, of course, the family in Hellsguard, I think, is terrific. And, and as you mentioned, Cora, they would make a good sort of, um, sort of like mid-level campaign villain in D in D and D or DCC. It's like a recurring villain. I mean, Hellsguard yeah. is another one you can borrow pretty much the wholesale and uh, turn into D and D adventure. I also feel like the undead suckers, as I like to call them, could. Instead of being villains, they could be a really fun tool. And I brought right. this up in the um, in the book club as well. But like, let's say you know you've got a you've got a big undead problem, and you've heard rumors about this nasty set of people who actually love nothing more than drinking the the undead essence from undead creatures. So you have to go out and find these like nasty people and bring them to this place that's given you trouble and let them take care of the problem. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but yeah, it'll be a two-edged sword because they'll still jerk your chain somehow anyway, right? Of course. Of <laughs> yeah. course. Exactly, exactly. Don't trust them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Something yeah. bad's going to happen if you do. Mm-hmm. Now, Hoy, is there, are, are there other things that you wanted to steal from this that we haven't discussed yet? I mean, um, I like the I like the just sort of the dream logic that's here. And I think it's a good idea of, you know, doing sort of like these sort of maybe not a giant cosmology the way Gary Gygax had in AD&D with all these different planes, but these are essentially all pocket dimensions, right? So mm-hmm. it's a way to like bring them over into these pocket dimensions where you can suspend the sort of, if you feel like your game is a little bit too grounded and you want to sort of break that up a little bit and get, you know, get into a little bit more dream logic, I think that works. Um, and then I, uh, again, Oliver was asking in, a, in the book club how you would handle that. He didn't want it just to be mechanically a series of just like will saves or insight checks. Um, so that's the one thing that you would say, okay, well, how we do this, how do we turn it around? How, and it might be a way to have characters shine in different ways because Varel's a straight up warrior character, right? She doesn't have any, she's very familiar with dark magic, but she doesn't have any mystical dark power. So how does she handle that in these situations where she doesn't, you know, it's not playing to her strengths, right? Um, so how can you have a fighter character in a, you know, in a completely magical environment and still succeed? Um, well, the answer to that is you you respond the way that Jarrell or Conan would respond, right? And that's you rely on your brawn, yeah. But when you cannot rely on your brawn, you re- you rely on your wits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Conan and Jarrell both have a lot going on in the wits department. Yes, they're not. I mean, <laughs> most of the sort and saucy characters are not. All of them are smart. They're not not really stupid. Okay, Farfad is a bit stupid mm-hmm. on occasion, but uh, even he's he's smart. Yeah. They're not. There's a yeah. big dump barbarian is a media creation. It's not actually in the books mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. Correct. Very yep. much. Yeah. At least in the new yeah, one, the old uh, one. Some of the new, some of the later ones have the big dump barbarian, but that was probably because the the authors just did whatever the cliche was. Mm-hmm. Exactly. At that point, it was responding to this new cliche that had come out of media a hundred percent. I also feel like there is one really cool spell in this and one really cool potential spell. I love the moment. Well, so of all the stories, Jarell meets magic was my favorite. I was just smiling ear to ear the entire time I was reading it. And I thought it was really cool when in the end of it, when she defeats Jerisme and Jerisme's castle comes tumbling down. And then like, she's like, like pulled into this, this like, part of the world where the castle is no longer there anymore. But uh, Gerard, Gerard, is that his name? I think his name is Gerard, yes. Yeah, so. yeah. Another yeah, G-villain. Yeah, exactly. Another G-villain. Um, he is also still with her at this point because he's like grabbed onto her, I believe, when this happened. And now it's just the two of them. And he does this thing where he basically just like points up with both of his hands. But when he does that, it's a spell that makes her have to look up at the point where her, where his two hands would eventually intersect if they ever did. And now she's just like trapped, like staring at this point up above her. And it's like such a simple spell, but I just thought it was really cool. And I'd love to steal that. And the other thing is in the dark land, that whole thing where when you just picture it, when you just think about where you're going, you just kind of move toward it and, and you just kind of skip like, huge sections of terrain in this world that's like the logic of that pocket dimension but i also think that would be a really neat spell for like a high level wizard to have to be able to kind of travel using that mm-hmm. yeah this when she uh, makes when she tries to stop jirel by making her remember the battle uh, by making her remember remember all her past and get stuck in her past uh, 
in the past. I think that was also another cool spell. And of course, that's also when Guillaume gets another mention in because he's uh, because uh, the thing he remembers is is the dead Guillaume and uh, that she fancies herself in love with him with him, which we don't. I don't. She's not really in love with Guillaume. She's maybe in lust with him, with him, or it's a curse. But uh, at any rate, he, she takes her to this uh, worst moment of her life. And okay, but Lirel is tough, and she gets through it. I also love that very kind of Rick and Morty moment too, right before that, where like all of these different oh, like, yeah, dimensions are opening up, and these like. Yeah, these strange creatures are all pouring yeah, through. And yeah, each one she describes kind of is so... blob and whatever. And there's all those windows to all those other dimensions. It's, uh, yes, it's quite... It's also a bit like that scene in the Doctor Strange movie where, all, where, where all those windows go to different places. Mm-hmm. Places. Mm-hmm. And, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely remind me of like Steve Ditko artwork. In yeah. There, and then, uh, yeah. Ditko probably read, read those stories. I mean, um, they mm. borrowed a lot of, I mean, in the early Marvel comics, also DC comics borrow a lot from the pulps. And sometimes DC actually sometimes had the same writers. Right, right. Mm. And then conversely, bring that back around because I know we know that, you know, Gary Gygax and Tim Cask were big fans of Doctor Strange also. So then it's like, like the same the same stream coming, you know, weaving through to, to influence the game. Um, I also felt um, there was a, uh, it's the story we didn't read, but there's a, uh, but Cora, you've probably read the uh, Quest for the Starstone, speaking of spells. So there's that little bit where the, the wizard is literally waiting for Northwest Smith to put his hands above his head again when he's climbing the hill. And then she just, he uses, uses the spell to like freeze the hand. So again, it's just like, it's a timing thing. He's just waiting for Northwest Smith to have his hands in the wrong position before he like, kind of handcuffs him with these spells. So it's kind of similar to what you were mentioning, Jeff, when, when he points up and Jerry's kind of just looks up and like, whoop, gotcha. You know? <laughs> I love that. And see if, if, if I ever eventually graduate from college uh, and, and have some more time, I would love to, um, I, w- I would love to like write a bunch of spells that are like very cool and very useful in very specific situations mm-hmm. like that. Right. Right. And um, so Cora also, I think I mentioned, um, so Jeff, I had mentioned in the book club, I felt like the, a merit story, um, Creep Shadow Creep. There was a whole sort of Shadowland sequence, um, and that was also published in 1934. Do we know if uh, if C. L. Moore had written any A merit or? Um, I mean, since he was hugely popular at the time, she probably did uh, did because yeah. um, he was um, also he was in also he was A merit was actually in he was an Argus Argosy which paid like three times as much as we tales paid paid. So he mm-hmm. was one of the most popular fantasists of his time. He's kind of forgotten now, but. Um, he was a huge influence on on all of them, Howard Moore, Lovecraft, and so, Lovecraft, and not, not so much, but Howard Moore. They were all influenced by him. She very likely mm. likely did read him. She was yeah. at any rate a reader of Weird Tales before she became a writer, and um, she only sent the first Northwest Smith story to Weird Tales because she didn't know any other magazine that would publish something like that. That of mm. course she might have sent it to some of the um, they were already around the early science fiction magazines. One. Wonder stories and um, amazing stories, astounding stories were already around and um, probably would have taken Northwest Smith, but um, she apparently wasn't a reader of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's an, another story. Of, well, I mean, I guess that was the interesting thing about Weird Tales, right? Because it really did was a really was a fan driven magazine in a certain way. They had a lot of interaction between the fans and the writers through the letter columns and and, and the like in the way that might not have been, uh, you know, in a more sort of uh, popular uh sort of highbrow or mainstream publication. Yeah, they I don't think that, level that was the case with Argosy or other adventures, mm-hmm. which was a bigger, bigger, which was a big name, Pulse at the time. time and mm-hmm. 
I think it was mostly weird tales and also the early science fiction part was amazing and astounding, but also they had a lot of interactions going on in the letter columns and so on. Which is probably also why we have an active science fiction and fantasy fandom now, but um, the fandom, for example, for crime fiction and mystery or romance is uh, very different. It's not quite, mm -hmm. uh, and also a newer, far newer ph phenomenon. Right. Now, uh, I know that we'll read these later on in the uh, the Northwest uh, Northwest of Earth stories. At this point, so she had not read, met uh, Henry Cotton, or at least in the early stories, right? Because she didn't meet him until 1935. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was 35 that they, that they met. Right. And she was still also, right. she was still engaged to the to the bank to the bank clerk who, now I nice. think he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And C.L. Moore apparently mm. insisted that it was an accident, but um, someone actually dug up the coroner's report from like 1935 and then said suicide. Suicide. Mm. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, it said, it also comes out in, in I should bet, the letter of condolence he sent to Robert E. Howard's father after he he kills himself, and um, it comes up there that uh, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe know that something like this happened to me, and so on. So, yeah, she mm -hmm. hadn't met, her, so she was still. I think when she wrote those, those she was still engaged to this, this bank teller. Now, it's uh, the only reason I ask is because I, I that last story was co-written with Henry Cutner, and you know the earlier stories she wrote on her own. Rest of the Starstone, yeah. I think, was co-written with him. Hellscott, I think, is still her own. Right in 1939 was the last story that she wrote. Uh, last Jurel story that she wrote, and then there were co-writers, and then she wrote a lot of other stuff, both on her own and with with Henry Cutner. Um, did she write any more? I mean, it seems like she moved more towards science fiction and and was not writing any more sword and sorcery or fantasy later in her career. I don't think she never returned to her science fiction. Is also more it's more it's a more dreamy uh, dream. It's you still have the dreamy atmosphere in quite a lot of her science fiction stories, and there are a lot of very good ones. Once and also mm -hmm. sometimes it's also oh god I forgot the name it was a was a retro Hugo finalist one from the early forties where where um, two people a woman and a man are plucked into the kind of museum of some kind of extra dimensional character which sounds very much like a Girald story but uh, what happened is that he and Kapna broke into astounding astounding and um, astounding paid a lot better than Weird Tales and they actually did pay Weird Tales uh, infamously only paid paid when they had to or when they found money so it was probably financial decision decision and um, so that's a, it's actually a pity that she never returned and also she retired fairly early she retired on the from writing in the 60s just at the cusp of the second sword and sorcery boom so so it's a pity that she never returned to the general stories stories even then, but um, she didn't write. I think she stopped writing for the magazine sometimes in the fifties after Kutner died, and then she um, yeah, and then she did um, only did some TV writing, writing, and stopped completely after she married her second husband. Yeah, I because I was just looking at that. I noticed that all of her all of her credits on the Internet Speculative Fiction database end in nineteen fifty eight. And I was like, weird. I wonder what happened in 1958. And then when I clicked on Henry Kuttner, that's when he died. Yeah, she, I think she uh, um, Kuttner died way too young. Of a, he had a heart attack or something. And um, she, I think it was probably partially brought on by stress. And uh, at any rate, she uh, just abruptly stopped writing for science fiction. She did write, um, I think, TV scripts. I think it was uh, like like that Lee Brackett got her jobs writing scripts for TV. Maverick or 77 Sunset script. I've actually never run across a, across a script, an episode of either that she's written. It would be interesting to see. 
And then she married someone else in the 60s and um, a widower and uh, stopped writing altogether. So I think it was probably, was grief about, I think it was grief about Kuttner, which made her stop because, um, I mean, this was the second partner she'd lost during the time she was writing yeah. and um, writing and she'd lost mm. too early under tragic circumstances. So uh, it was probably like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. Right, right. Sure. But she still had um, a, a, quite a, a following in order for them to print, uh, you know, the best of C.L. Moore in the early 70s and print the Jarrell, you know, collect the Jarrell books in the 70s and, and early 80s. I think the first so, Jarrell uh, collection came out sometime in the late 60s in the wake of the Conan boom. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That makes sense. So have the two of you read much C.L. Moore outside of Jarrell? I, obviously, you both have read some Northwest Smith because I, I am so in love with Jarrell of Joiry that like it makes me want to read more. But also my impression is that this is like really her best stuff. Is that accurate? Um, I think the Jarrell and some of the Northwest Smith stories are the best. She wrote some very, very good stories later. But um, I actually prefer her early weird tale stuff to the later stuff she wrote for Astounding. I mean, there's some very good stuff. No Woman Born is very good. And um, Winter Season, um, Judgment Night, Night, those are all very good stories. And I've read some of them mostly for the retro Hugos because um, Mimsy was a Borogrove, which she wrote with Kuttner, is also a very good one. one. But um, mm-hmm. my fa- actually, the, the Jarrells and Northwest Smith are my favorite of her work. Work. So I like a lot of the, the stuff on the, on the 40s as well. Well, it certainly seems like the Jarelle is her most personal work, right? Out of all the stuff. Yeah. That's it's also the only one which has, um, no, um, I mean, there are some others which have female protagonists, but it's the only female recurring protagonist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I only just discovered, I, I thought Northwest Smith was a female character, and I didn't know that Northwest Smith was a dude. No, Northwest Smith is a, he's basically um, your Han Solo. Way before Han Solo okay. was a thing, and even Eric Lund Stark, you had Northwest Smith. He was the first space rogue. And then we have Lee Brackett writing some of the Star Wars movies. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Fascinating. Right. But even then, there's sort of a sense of melancholy, at least in the uh, Quest of the Star Stone, right, with Northwest Smith. He's melancholy, he's homesick, he's, you know, for this Earth that he has been exiled from, essentially. He's, right. um, there's, there's he's a homesick sense of mel- a lot, actually. And yeah. uh, she did write mm-hmm. a Northwest Smith story, a very short one, Song in a Minor Key, which I think was, which is one of the latest she wrote. She wrote about those characters. So she did revis- revisit Northwest Smith, but she never re- revisited Jarell for some reason. And it does seem as though the Jarell stories do take place in our universe. Like it, she taught that we mentioned France. Uh, she has her crucifix on when she first goes down into the underworld, which she has to take off to really like be able to explore it. Um, I'm curious, like, does this, do you guys have a sense as to whether or not this is truly our world that she's in, or is this kind of like some weird version of our world? Well, it's a version of our world where medieval castles come with portals to the underworld in the, in the base. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But perfect, it, perfect. Yes. But is Wari a real place? Yeah, I don't think it is a real place. I think it's, uh, it's as fictional as... Um, Things that things that most remind me of are those um, those um, Clark Ashton Smith stories about what is called Avaroin or Avaroin. Yeah, Avaroin yeah. 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 story. Yeah. Which is okay. also this uh, place of the sort of place in medieval France, France, which never really was. So, yes, it probably is our world in the way that the Solomon Kane stories or so on are set in our world. So, so it's not re- it's um, sort of historical, it's quasi historical fantasy. Right, right. And I believe it was Jeremy Harper who was saying that like he wanted he wanted us to find out that Joiri is right next to Avrion. Yeah, yeah, it probably is. It probably is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think um 
the and you made a good point, Cora, that she really captured a sort of an idea of the medieval mindset. But I think she didn't want to be hampered down by trying to get into the super specifics of that. And that's why these stories frequently take place in dream worlds, in, in, in between worlds, uh, you know, um, you know, underworlds. So that's, that's always a case of that being, you know, she's never situated in a sort of more grounded story the way that a Conan story where you get, really get a sense of the geography of Joari and what's going around, whatever, how everything is in relation to each other. No, no, it's just um, Jory is, um, is castles and there are a couple of other castles and um, and maybe a forest or something, but it's uh, it's more, you, you learn more about dream worlds and you know, learn about the real world in those stories because the dream worlds are actually what is more important. Mm-hmm. And kind of my takeaway from all this is like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we read as a part of this podcast. It's a lot of it's just like kind of like curiosities and kind of weird little off, <laughs> like oddball uh, kind of random characters and storylines. But I, I really feel like Jarell of Joiry is is top-level sword and sorcery. It like deserves its place right beside Fafford of the Grey Mouser and Conan. Um, I'd also now throw Amaro up there too. Yeah. But Amaro oh. and Jarell of Joiry absolutely have a place amongst the tops of those. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's... I'm actually a bit annoyed because because um, quite often people ignore Jarell when they talk about Sword and Saucy. It's Conan, Conan. I mean, there's a lot of Sword and Saucy fans are basically Conan fans, which is okay, yeah, but yeah. Uh, accept that you're a Conan fan, fan, not a Sword and Saucy fan. But um, Farfad and the Grey Mauser, of course, get a lot of um, play, but um, and also lesser characters like um, Henry Kutner's um, attempts at Elak of Atlantis and so on. So on, but uh, mm-hmm. quite a few people don't like Jirel, and um, yeah, I think a lot of it is sexism, and sometimes it's also because the stories are quiet and more contemplative and uh, more and um, have this dreamy dream world. But okay, which is fine. You don't have to like them. But um, what annoys me is that people like Cole, or if they like uh, Clark Ashton Smith, but don't like Jirel, then okay, then it's sexism, obviously. I think the <laughs> Jirel stories are obviously also much harder to imitate. Then, you know, even badly, then, you know, we know there's a lot of bad Conan, right? For, <laughs> you know, not, you know, even official Conan from, from El Sprague de Camp and all these other oh, people. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I had the misfortune of reviewing a Lynn Carter book recently for Galactic yeah. Journey. <laughs> right, right. And it was uh, right. painful. And can we all just collectively be grateful that Lynn Carter and Elspreg de Camp were not writing Jarella Joiri yeah, stories in the 1970s yeah, right. as well? Oh, God. <laughs> right. I, I don't I mean, want to. Um, having read what how Carter um, described women's bodies, I really don't want to watch anyone near Jarell. I wouldn't have wanted near Jarell. Jarell would have been maybe Lee Brackett or bracket yeah. if CMU wasn't going to write anymore and now it's okay we have a lot of good women writers nowadays but, um, right because right. we don't have Viral pastilles for some reason we have uh, right the enough of atlantis pastilles but not Viral pastilles i don't know why yeah well maybe we should just be grateful for but yes we having have what we have great stories yeah. right yes all right, so we have to wrap up soon there, but do you have any last thoughts, Cora, on, on Jarell or C.L. Moore that you, that you want to share with us? Well, I mean, I'm glad that C.L. Moore is um, getting sort of renace- renaissance because those stories were very, very difficult to find, like 20 or 25. When I started reading, it was almost impossible to find anything by C.L. Moore, Moore because I think she had recently died, died and uh, no one knew who, the rights, who had the rights and so on. 
she did also didn't have any biological children. She only has two step has two stepdaughters from the seventh marriage. Mm. Marriage, and now mm. um, it's a lot. Uh, C.L. Moore's work is a lot more more accessible than it used to be, which is a great thing because those are great stories and they deserve to be uh, to be read. Right. So um, yes, Jarrell stories, Northwest Smith, also the other things like Vintage Season is great or Judgment Night uh, Night. So yes. Thank Lord, I'm great that I'm glad that he's getting finally the recognition she deserves. She's also won a few retro Hugos together with Kutner, Kutner, which of course she can enjoy, mm -hmm. but her stepdaughter can. And so, also Cora, do you have any uh, projects that you're working on that you want our audience to know about? Mm, well, um, right now, well, okay, I'm actually doing this. I should say, say next year is um, next year's Worldcon is ChaiCon Eight in Chicago. And they're doing the 1946 retrospective project to look at great science fiction of 1946, which of course includes some also some great works by C.L. Moore together with Henry Kuttner. Kuttner, so yes, we are. So yes, we are planning. We are having some good, some great plans there. It's that's not a okay. It's not a lot to say right now because it's still uh, it's still like uh, almost a year away. Yes, a little over a year, a little less than a year away. Uh, so that's something I want to talk about and. Okay, otherwise, um, I have more stories coming up in my Kurval Sword and Sorcery series, which was basically because I liked the code, which I created because I liked the Cole and Conan stories as king, but there weren't enough of them for me, so I created my own character. And um, and he has a, and, and uh, there is a very general like character in those stories who shows up in the, he doesn't show up earlier on, but she shows up later on because I always thought, like, okay, it would be great if. We had a character like that, and okay, I'm writing more of those, and there will be more coming soon. And you can Love be it. found at uh, corabulert.com and also on Twitter as well, right? Yes, under at corabulert. All right. So uh, before we go, uh, I would like to list our candidates for a future episode. Which episode will that be, Jeff? I'm, I forget now. One sixteen. Wow, one sixteen wow. of our new format. All right. So uh, the rough theme for that is labyrinths. And the candidates are Josiah Bancroft's Senlin Ascends, S-E-N-L-I-N, Ascends, Susanna Clark's Piranesi, Mark Danielewski's House of Leaves, and Ursula K. Le Guin's Tombs of Atuan. And so those are our candidates, and the theme is Labyrinths. Awesome. And I would like to give a quick shout-out to the patrons who joined us at our patron book club today. Thank you to Oliver Brackenberry, Robert Coleman, Jeremy Harper, and our logo designer, Rick Byrne, for joining us at today's patron book club. Our patrons are able to join us for the book clubs that we record before each episode. And also our patrons are able to vote on the episodes that we're covering in the future, hence the four candidates that Hoy just shared with us. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons, uh, Brian Rumble. Trevor Stamper, Daniel J. Bishop, Justin Hamilton, Noah Green, Robbie Fioto, By Grinstow, Dan Alexander, and Bruce Erickson. Thank you so much for your support. Mm -hmm. Also wanted to give everybody a heads up that our next episode, episode 107, will be covering Ellen Kushner's Swords Point. And episode 108 is going to be covering Gene Wolfe's The Shadow of the Torturer. So we have some really cool stuff right around the corner. Right. And if you want to give us suggestions or feedback, do reach out to us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. If you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. 
And Cora, I believe you're the third guest that we've had on more than once. So you're in a very you're in a very elite oh. group right now. So you thank go. you so much right. for for ret- returning to the show. Yeah, right, so we have to get you a special blazer. <laughs> so much fun. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>